Now, I'm going to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to explain some of the language that I'm using here. All right, so this teaching that we'll have for the next hour or so, right? I mean, this is serious Bible school, guys. You've got notes. You've got a whiteboard, dry erase right up here. And um, I don't know what else we have. I even have your notes with me to make sure I follow the outline. So this is the this is the sort of thing I teach almost wherever I go. There's times I give a different kind of exhortation if it's just where I'm just preaching, you know, in one place. But I'll often teach at a Bible school or I'll do a conference at a church. And these are the same themes with variations that I teach wherever I go. It's basically the gospel of the kingdom expounded into the practical life of disciples who then join together as the church. And our becoming the church of the New Testament is the crowning achievement of the gospel. That's exactly what the apostles taught, particularly in Romans and Ephesians, definitely implied by Jesus when he first came and set out the gospel. But the gospel of the kingdom incorporates everything about kingdom life. It announces who God is, who Jesus is, and what he did in order to become king. And then what that means correspondingly for people who are unsaved, and then people who are saved. Every dimension of the gospel has a corresponding practical uh, application to our lives. So that's the sort of thing I teach. And it's what I'm going to teach here today. So um, the, the first part of what we're teaching before we get into the actual content is an overview of where we're coming from as a work. Okay, so I'm, I'm reiterating things for people who are already quite familiar with what we do. You've been a part of us for years. It's good to remind ourselves, for goodness sake, I remind myself of these things one form or another every day. So it's good as a reminder and that's biblical. Uh, also, there have been a lot of new people, so this is for your sake also. And I see we have a lot of visitors, uh, so it's for you too. Even if you're not uh, you're considering being a part of this work, you're more than welcome to be here and listen to the teachings. So you're very welcome. And by the way, it is awesome to see all these familiar, some not familiar faces joining us visiting today. God bless you. By the way, welcome. If I didn't get a chance to say hello to you at the beginning. It's a real privilege that you joined us today, and I hope that you enjoy what's, uh, you know, what we're talking about, and also you can hear me through the, the, the entirety of this teaching. Uh, but just a little bit of an overview. Uh, I'll get to the text in a moment. Uh, that, that's in a few moments. So, but first, for this overview, right, a summary of our work, at least in some words. We have a vision, we have a mission, we have a motto. I'm going to talk about those things. Our vision is basically to be family on mission. It's extremely simple. But we want to remind ourselves of what it is. Okay, the, this whole teaching and, and the series that's to come, we'll have four other meetings after this, it's all about what we do and why we do it. But why we do it is all the gospel of the kingdom. So I'm going to talk about the gospel of the kingdom in theory and then in practice. Right? So what we do in light of the gospel, our goal, our vision is to be family internally on mission externally. 
It's not one or the other, it's both. Alright, the call of God on His people is simple. We're family. Right? We're not an attendance culture. That's not biblical wisdom. It doesn't, it doesn't operate in power if we're attending just the celebrities or the special ones. Uh, leaders are meant to equip people to be a healthy family. And that health, a healthy family shares its life through the gospel and good deeds and just family love. And that's the mission. So that's who we are, family on mission. In one sense, we need say no more, but we have plenty of other things to say. So our mission is to make disciples. That's the Great Commission. We replicate our own lives in others through the proclamation of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, which ideally we are modeling as families. That's what makes the entire witness most powerful. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. It's an urgent biblical gospel call to love one another and to share the gospel in power coming out of that biblical love toward one another. So the Jesus way of making disciples, according to Matthew's gospel, is also to plant churches because we can't be the Jesus kind of disciples without forming those disciples into family, because when they share life, most of the discipleship occurs in that context. So discipleship happens in the context of family, and it produces new families. So that's what we mean by the mission of make disciples. We get that out of Matthew 28. Um, Go make disciples. Teach them to observe everything I commanded you, right? So the goal is the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, the way Paul put it, and among Jews, of course. But the first thing we do when we make a new disciple is we immerse them in water into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's your family atmosphere, and then we teach the disciples to conform to Jesus' image. But again, it's done in the context of family, and the end result is family. That's our mission. Our motto is that we are discovering the way of powerful living in Jesus Christ. Just a practical motto that we felt the Lord gave us at the very beginning of this work, even before the beginning of it. Uh, The Lord spoke this to our hearts, and it seems to be a good one still. We haven't changed it. We say discovering. Am I moving too fast? Are these things printed for you? I can't remember. Okay, number one, the vision is family on mission. Number two, the mission is make disciples, but in a church planting context. Number three, our motto is discovering the powerful way of living in Jesus Christ. We say discovering because discipleship is a process that will never really get done. So there's always something new to learn about the Lord, about the gospel, about ourselves, about one another. We're always on a journey. And our goal is maturity, but even the most mature are not absolutely perfect, and we all need to keep growing. It's a journey. It's a story. We say we're discovering the way of powerful living because we believe that the kingdom of heaven is God's dominion, but wherever God rules, there's a people living His way. The kingdom is a way of life. God's kingdom is not just attending meetings. God's kingdom is an entire way of life. It's a culture among the society that calls themselves belonging to Jesus. 
So it's not just a religious affiliation. It's a way of life, right? That's what's described for us in the book of Acts. They were steadfastly committed. Like they were, they were chained to this way of life. To what way of life? They were steadfastly committed to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. That's just the way they lived. It was a way and it was all done in the power and glory of the Holy Spirit. It was not done in human effort. It's not hyped up. We're not trying to do this or else we become a cult. Anything would become a cult or just a dead dry religion. Rather, it's in the life of the love and the Spirit of God. But in Acts 2.42, there's a description of what this new community was doing with their time and with their efforts. And that was a way of life, which is why in the book of Acts, no fewer than six times, the church is called the way. Because they weren't just a group affiliating with a certain faith. They themselves were a way of life. Which is why there's an urgency for us to continue to grow as disciples. Because again, discipleship is becoming like Jesus and living a certain way. When we live His way, in the power of the Spirit, we are powerful people, as God called us to be. We influence people through the power of relentless forgiveness, loving one another, solving problems or reconciling relationships the Jesus way. Conducting our affairs, managing our bodies, our appetites, our relationships according to the teachings of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament. That's a way of life that when it's actually lived out together in this world, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are then powerful people. So it's our constant process to discover this way of powerful living in Jesus Christ. Right. So there's your three points. uh, discovering the way of powerful living in Jesus Christ. Ha, okay, letter B on your notes. Are you guys with me? Am I following the notes clearly enough? I'll try to be more explicit. So here we get more into the the teaching proper. And I want to read now from 1 Corinthians 11. We are trying to, to base this work on and practice throughout our whole history and future, what I call in Scripture, and really Scripture uses the term traditions, the apostolic traditions. Right? And I'm going I'm to show you the reference where I get that term from. There's a few places. Right? Tradition is usually a negative word for people who are filled with the Spirit and they want to follow the Lord. And it's used in Scripture in a negative way. Because there are negative traditions that are things that humans develop aside from the Word of God, and then they often replace the Word of God. Those are not good traditions, and they are most certainly not what we're talking about here. Those are the bad traditions, (laughs) the ones that Jesus denounces and condemns in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. You teach as teachings uh, the traditions of men, Jesus said. And that is absolutely not what we're doing. In fact, if we keep the apostolic traditions, we are setting ourselves against the traditions of men. Which is why we focus in on these things and why they're called traditions at all. So, let me read the text here. In fact, I should read the Bible and pray to sanctify this sermon further or teaching. 
But look here in chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Paul's still coming off his last point, but it's a great place to start. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So again, right there, you see that way of life that Paul lived when he was among new believers. And then as they grew, if he stayed among them, they would see the way he lived. And he used himself as a model for them. He makes that clear in chapter 4, here again in chapter 11, also in Philippians 4. Paul's just like, just do what I do and you'll be fine. (laughs) In fact, he uses much stronger language. Do what I do and God will be with you, which is, sounds like a pretty good deal of confidence in his lifestyle. And it's spoken in humility because he does it all to serve others. So, of course, we're, you know, we're, we're to imitate apostolic people and then grow together and imitate one another as we're growing in Christ. So, again, you get that whole idea of relationship and um, uh, community. What's the word I'm looking for? A way of life. Just the way of life that we're, we're training one another in a way of life. So there you have it. But anyway, Paul funneled this way of life into a city when he won people to the Lord. And then in order to develop and sustain disciples who became churches, he did that through traditions. Tradition. And here's the language he uses. Verse 2. I praise you, talking to the Corinthians. He's commending them because they were doing a lot of things wrong. So he's accentuating some of the good things they were doing. He says, I praise you because you remember me in everything. And hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And even that word there, delivered them to you, is the same word as the word tradition in its verbal form. So in Greek, it sounds the same. The word tradition and the word delivered is the same root word in Greek. It sounds the same to their ears. So he passed on certain teachings and customs that made his churches apostolic churches. There you go. And the Corinthians were getting a lot of things wrong, but they were still doing or trying to do the things Paul taught them that made them the church. And so he said, well, I commend you because you're at least trying to do that. And one of the things was right there in this passage, the way they would meet in the spirit. Paul taught them to do that. Meet together as a family in the Spirit, which means you pray and you prophesy. That was one of his traditions. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll put that in your notes in a moment. But that was one of the traditions. That's the one he's dealing with here. But I read uh, this text. I started with it because he uses that word tradition explicitly as a noun and even as a verb in the same verse. So what does this mean in number one? That Paul has traditions and that the apostles had traditions. Well, I already explained that. These are very specific teachings that come from Scripture that correspond to certain practical customs that Paul taught his churches. Understand these things and do these things and you will embody Jesus Christ in power in your cities. And I identify three here in your notes that Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians. All right. So these three traditions, if we understand them and we practice them, we will be the church that he called us to be. The church is that he called us to be. All right. So that's why I teach things this way. 
Because this is the way I understand the apostles operating. Especially Paul, who was that first apostle to the Ephesians 4 apostles that would continue apostolic work into the future after the ascension. Pretty important. We tend not to embrace what the apostles teach when it comes to these nitty-gritty issues. Our man-made traditions make these apostolic traditions less urgent or we ignore them completely. So the very things most urgent to the apostles, our man-made traditions ignore or at least neglect up to a point. The most urgent things to them are tend to be the least urgent things to us. And then the things as mo- the modern church often that we make the most urgent are the least urgent to the apostles or they don't exist at all. Like there are certain things we got to have to be a church, whether it's a denominational identity or facility or the budget or a, this whole thing. And I'm not saying these things are wrong or bad. I'm just saying they are not at all urgent to formulate the church from a scriptural point of view. Yeah, we wouldn't live without them normally when we're operating our own way. But the things that Paul's most urgent about, it's like, eh, we could come or go with those things. So we got to flip that around, man. Because our concern is to do God's will. It's not just to be a certain style or method. We don't care about that. Or we just be, we'd be just as religious as the very thing we're trying not to be. Our goal is the glory of God. It's the person of Jesus formulated in his people. The apostolic traditions give us that practical urgency and traction to become that people. So Lord, forgive me for forgetting up to this point, but we call on your name to help us understand these things deep in our heart, exactly the way the Apostle Paul prays we pray, that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see the glory of Jesus ruling on high and what that means for us in practical Holy Ghost wisdom power and lifestyle. Help us, Lord, and and, and encourage us, lead us, conform us to your very image. That's God's purpose. We love you. We bless you. We declare you are king. You are Lord, alive from the dead, enthroned on high. Praise God and coming back again. Jesus is king. Amen. So what does this mean? Number one, what are these gospels? Number what these gospels? What are these traditions? In number two there, what are they, right? You with me? And so we have letter A, full gospel. The first tradition is the full gospel. And I have a text for that. That's over in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Yes, Paul used tradition language when he talked about delivering the gospel to a city. Because that's the first protocol he'd bring, the gospel. It's like that's where we always start is by preaching this gospel of the kingdom. We talk about Jesus, who he is and what he did. And then we begin to teach people uh, what that implies, how to live the life of the gospel. However, the gospel Paul's talking about is a full gospel. It's not just the beach part of the ocean that tells people how to get saved, which is the most important thing for unbelievers. But it's also the beginning of an ocean, all of which is the gospel. This is why in Romans, a a bunch of saved people in Rome were behaving a certain way, arguing among one another, Jews versus Gentiles. There were ethnic 
and, and background religious differences that were causing real divisions. So what's Paul's response? Oh, you don't understand the gospel fully. You understand it partly enough to be saved, but not enough to live together in harmony because old divisions still exist. So for Paul, what they lacked was not merely a little Christian teaching. What they lacked was a fuller understanding of the gospel itself. So what does Paul do? He writes out the gospel in full in Romans 1 through 11. It's gospel preaching. Including the parts that they weren't quite applying. One of which we will talk about in a little while. For Paul, these deeper issues were not just special scripture classes. They all belong to the charter of the kingdom that he called the gospel. The good news. So this first tradition is not just how to get saved. It includes that. And that's vital. But it incorporates the entire message of Jesus as the apostles preached it. I believe in our gospel-saturated culture, we are in a gospel famine. Because we talk about it at a certain level, but we don't go into the elements that are implied by the resurrection and then the ascension, which implies the constitution of the church in Ephesians 4. These are gospel issues, that's my point. Right. Remember, we talked about last time we met together, the seven and God willing, if I write this book, there's going to be eight components to the gospel. Right. As the gospel writers present the full gospel of Jesus, which is a full presentation of Jesus himself. There's number one, his divinity. He always existed as God, the son. Right. This is not just a man raised up and anointed. He always existed. That's good news. The word became flesh. Right. Number two, he has a Jewish pedigree that's part of the gospel story. Number three, he was virgin conceived and born. So he's fully God and fully human. There's no one like Jesus. He's virgin born and conceived and born. Um, Number four, he lived a life of obedience and he did great deeds in the spirit. And he taught during his life. So the life of Jesus is part of the gospel. How do I know this? I read the gospels and it talks about what Jesus did. <laughs> and his miracles and his obedience and his, his reverence for the Father. And of course his teachings. Which also need to be recovered in our generation. It's all part of the gospel. Right? It's all there in scripture. That's why Paul called it a tradition. Because it's like, let's focus on this. Let's not cherry pick a few verses that fit what we like and then just do what we want. Paul's like, everything's encompassed by the gospel. So am I on number four? Now five, the death of Jesus, of course, gets supreme attention by us usually, and rightly so. That's a huge part of the gospel. It's like the breaking point. Jesus died for our sins. That's part of the gospel message. We all know number six, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's where he's declared king. And of course, he's alive forever. And then number seven, the ascension is when he's enthroned. The crowning achievement of the gospel. And is actually the heart and soul of the gospel message. That Jesus is king. That is the message. He rules now. He ascended. He's on a throne. It's not one day on a throne. He's on the throne. He's the ruler of the universe. He's the ruler of China, Thailand, America, Mexico, you name it. He's the king. And then number eight, he'll return to enforce his kingship even in a political, physical way. For now, it's demonstrated through a people called 
the church. Full gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses the same language in verse 3. I delivered to you. There's that verb of tradition giving, right? Same verb. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. And earlier, I, 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 I skipped this in verse 1. He says, brethren, I, um, I want to make known to you the gospel which I preached to you. So I skipped verse 1. Sorry about that. That's where he, he uh, says the gospel explicitly. And then in verse 3, he says, I delivered this to you as of first importance. When I came into the city, I announced Jesus. And I started explaining what it's all about, how this, this Jewish rabbi miracle worker who was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem that none of you Roman Greek types even care about. He's, he was actually doing that for all mankind. And God raised him from the dead and now he's king and he calls Jews, Greeks, Gentiles, Scythians, Syrians, all sorts to repentance. He's the one king. Now, when I came and I did that, I not only announced it, but I began to teach it to you because he says in verse one, you receive this gospel, you also stand in it. So the gospel is not just what gets us in the kingdom, but it makes us upright throughout our lives. So I deliver this to you as a first importance. And then he gives a thumbnail summary of the gospel. That's the first tradition. That's what we're going to dig into a little bit more today for a little while. But before we do that, I'll summarize the other traditions of 1 Corinthians. The Lord's Supper. That's letter B. The Lord's Supper is the second tradition. It is not the Roman sacrament. And neither is it just a routine chip and a sip in a service. That was not what the apostles taught. It was a covenant meal in the spirit of the Passover but in its fulfilled form in the new covenant. A meal, a family covenantal meal, during which Jesus is remembered and honored, and the people around the meal fellowship like at a family meal, and then afterward, according to the order of 1 Corinthians 11 and following, they would then show one another the Spirit through the gifts. They had to do that meal, and I'll explain why by and by when we get to that point. But believe me, it was revolutionary then and it's revolutionary now. Who you eat with embodies the kingdom and why you do it. The third tradition, which I already mentioned, is the gathering for prayer and prophecy. Gatherings in the spirit. All of Paul's churches were charismatic, not just in the historical sense since the 1960s and before that, uh, the Pentecostal movement at the beginning of the last century. In our modern era, but in the biblical sense, he, he, he made sure they were baptized in the spirit and he taught them how to operate in the gifts. They had to be spirit people. They couldn't just be a social club. Come on, Come on Shondai, that's some preaching right there. I'm not just teaching. That's some preaching right there. <clears throat> how many people like the whiteboard behind me so far? Everybody digging that? Just making sure because we went through a lot to get that thing up there. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm getting to that whiteboard. (laughs) Right on. So, yeah, we're charismatic. We are people of the power of the Spirit. I just got to say this. You know, the the other day, Brian was saying, because he was telling me that he told his kids. This was during the meeting, so some of you guys will remember remember this. Um, When we were at, Gene and I were visiting 
um, your guy's house church. And Brian said that he told his kids, um, Bob disciples me, which is not the full picture. But that's, he says, Bob disciples me. Well, who disciples Bob? Well, the Lord does. It's like, amen. I hope that's the case. But one of the main reasons why we're, Gina and I are immersed in the church is that we do visit. In one way, I wish we could just be part of one church, but we feel an obligation still from the Lord to visit. But even visiting the churches that are, one of the main reasons why we do is that we could be in church and get discipled. I rarely say much when I come to these groups, and probably half the time when I leave, I feel like my life has been saved again. Not born again again, but like, oh my goodness, how I needed those three, four, five prophecies that came forth and put a puzzle together for me. I mean, that happens often, where I I leave saying, what would I do if I weren't just among the saints who are prophesying? Because I needed that. I'm bigger and better now. Last time I got uh, um, encouraged on things that I needed some encouragement on, very specifically, and then beyond that. And then for the other 50%, it's completely edifying, and I still ask, what would I would have done if I didn't go to that meeting? It's, it's, that, it's discipleship when we're in the Spirit and we're sharing the Spirit, especially putting it the treads down on the, on the road of real life. That's where it happens, inwardly. And then outwardly, we take that to our neighborhoods, our stores, our social contacts, and whatever. So the third tradition that Paul taught his people is how to gather and gather in the Spirit. That was often done as part of the Lord's Supper, and sometimes it seems to have just been done on its own without the Lord's Supper. There's no rule about that as long as we're taught to do these things, and we do them. It's just a holy, explosive cocktail of the saints gathering in love and in the Holy Spirit, and they prophesy, so you're just going to have Jesus, and you're going to grow. Once we learn how to do it, once we get past the awkward parts... I'm not just sitting there listening to a preacher and learn how to be together. And it's like if you don't go through the awkward stages and the uncomfortable things and dealing with the children. It's like if you don't get through those things, you never get to the the pay dirt. But at the same time, you never get to the pay dirt if you're not willing to go through those things because it's all weird and awkward, especially when we're used to something different. But once you break through that, it's like, ah, okay, I get it now. The warm side of the pool. But even then, you're still going to struggle through things. And if you don't struggle through things, then you're not doing it right. I don't want, to, I don't want us to build churches that avoid those problems. I want to face them. Because that's where the discipleship occurs. We learn how to live life together. Whoa! We're going way too far on this. So the spiritual gatherings, that constitutes the third tradition. Now we move to the, the, the gospel itself as our foundation, going back to the first tradition. All right, let her see. The gospel is our foundation. When the gospel is our foundation, Jesus is our foundation. Because, number one, in your notes under C, the gospel is Jesus in words. That's why John calls him the word, because he is the message. So when we put him into words that can be proclaimed and taught the way the apostles did, Jesus first and then the apostles. I keep saying the apostles because even they recorded Jesus' words. Anyway, when we preach and teach that gospel, we have Jesus himself if it's done in the Holy Spirit and love and faith. 
which is pretty awesome. That Jesus manifests presently through the gospel. So yeah, the gospel is Jesus in words. So if the gospel, the full gospel is our foundation. If it's first and if it is definitive for the entire constitution of the house and its works, then Jesus himself is the foundation. That's how Paul laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ himself. He preached this gospel, the gospel we have in scripture. Number two there in your notes, this full gospel is Jesus in his fullness. And we already went through, I summarized those eight components. So when we have a full gospel, we have a full Jesus. When we have a partial gospel, we have a partial Jesus. And that's necessary for a time. The Samaritan woman needed a certain measure of Jesus. But as time went on in her community of faith and making more disciples, she learned more about Jesus. Same with the Romans and the Corinthians and the Philippians and the same with us. So it's not like you preach, you know, the entirety of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Every time you're sharing the gospel, you give the shallow end where it's needed. But as believers, we have to grow and constitute ourselves as churches based on this fullness of Jesus. And then number three, something I already said again. Uh, The gospel is Jesus in words as a way of life. Jesus teaching that if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. And if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. That's as much gospel as anything else because it's in the gospel. If if, If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar First go and be reconciled, then come back and offer your gift. That's gospel. That's all part of a way of life that he taught. That's what it means to follow those teachings, is what it means to be ruled by the king in heaven on the earth. So, Jesus as a way of life is one of the angles by which we must approach this great gospel message. Now, digging further into the gospel, Roman numeral number two, The new creation, the gospel message proclaims a new creation. And this is where we turn to our main text for today. Something we'll discuss just for a little while. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. That's where you can turn. But in your notes, in letter A, I gave you key passages that reveal the new creation aspects of the gospel. Now, I think I wrote those out, did I? Okay, so they're provided. So our text is the first one. We'll look at Romans 5, 12 and following. But I listed for you the others where Paul and in one case Peter um, makes clear this dimension of the gospel where our faith and when we're justified, we actually become a new creation. This is a very, very crucial and foundational aspect of the gospel message that those who believe are forgiven but they're not just forgiven they are transformed into something different it's called a new creation and you see these passages and this is just where it's 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 presented systematically if you would and and forthrightly and you have one two three four five passages four of them rather lengthy that come out and say, y'all are something brand new, stop acting like the old people. And then it exhorts them to further behavior. 
But then the whole pattern and the whole idea is scattered throughout the New Testament. It's implied by the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, that he was actually born of the Spirit from his pre-existent state. We didn't exist before, at least not in eternity. We did as humans, but then we're also born of the Spirit. We're born again. That means a new creation. That means we're born powerful people. It's not something we achieve or earn. It's something granted us by the grace of God. That's very, very important to Paul's gospel. It's why we have it repeated here for just Paul four times. Now, I'm going to read a little bit of this passage and then finally get to our precious whiteboard for a little while. So 512 is a turning point in Paul's presentation of the gospel in Romans. Up to this point, he's been talking about the, the offering of Jesus as a blood sacrifice that atones for the sins of those who believe. And so when we believe, we are justified. That's part one of Paul's gospel in Romans. Part two, he crosses into this issue that we're also a new creation. So that's where we're picking things up. 5.12, just a few verses. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all people because all sinned. And then he pauses. Let's pause here with him. Who's he talking about? Death came, or sin entered the world through one man. Who's that? That's Adam. So right there, we're in Genesis. We're talking about creation. So he immediately goes to the creation narrative to say something about the new creation because we have a new Adam. It's Genesis on like a million steroids. It's Genesis supernatural. It's the new humanity. It's what the gospel brings about. That is very, very powerful. This, if we're going to be apostolic churches, we can't just meet in homes. We have to live like a new creation. We can't start with the way we meet. We have to start with these more fundamental gospel issues. We're a new creation, which is how we press through all those little conflicts that help form us into churches. It's exactly why Paul's preaching this to the Romans, because the Jews and the Gentiles weren't getting along. And Paul's like, you must have forgotten who you are. In fact, it seems as your original gospel preaching didn't tell the whole story. So what, I'm going to give you the whole story. This is, not, this is not just your ticket to heaven. You belong to a whole new Adam. You're like a whole new species. I didn't know that. Well, I'm glad I got to tell you, Paul's saying. Some of them literally didn't realize that. Like the disciples in Ephesus. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. We didn't know that happened. Yeah, it did. So let's fill you in a little bit, dunk you again, and, you know, get some Shandai happening also. But, all right, so, so he's going to Genesis. That's my point. You see his strategy? He's not just coming out of the blue. He's going back to the Old Testament and saying, this is now fulfilled in a new man. And when you were baptized, I'm getting ahead, but you'll forgive me. You have to. You're a new creation. <laughs> Okay, so you were baptized, which means that all Adam race in you is done. It was dead and buried. When you came up again, you came up in this, this new Adam. He calls him in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. Here, it's implied he's a new Adam, but he just calls him the Messiah. He's your Adam now. He's your man. 
Right on. We'll get. We'll, we'll see it. And, and I've preached this passage to our folks before, but, you know, we're doing it again. <laughs> so, verse 13. Now, until the law came, all those centuries before the law, he says, there still was sin in the world. But it wasn't, sin was not imputed when there was no law. It wasn't clear that you're making violations, so there weren't all these very specific accusations, even though there was still sin, still guilt, and still death. That's why he says in verse 14, Nevertheless, death still ruled from that period from Adam until Moses. That's when the law came to point out, see how many violations you guys are doing every day? That's what the law did. It couldn't renew. It just, it, it's not the only thing it did, but one of the things it did was point out that we were locked into sin and guilty of sin. So even death reigned even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Even those who are not disobeying specific commands. They're still sinners. And death still rules. That's just the way it is. And then he calls Adam a type of him who was to come. So as powerful as Adam was determining the identity of a whole race that will come after him who fell, he's not the real deal. Ultimately, the real deal was still to come later in history. Adam was a type of the coming one. Which is why anything that Jesus does is greater than anything that Adam did. That's the gospel. That's why later it says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Because grace is greater because the, the purveyor of grace is greater than the first man. And that's Yeshua, the, the real man. He's our real man. He's the real chief of the human race. He's the son of man. I'm talking about Jesus. Have you heard of my king? That's my king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of peace. That's another sermon. You'll find it online. It's awesome. Very empowering. Jesus is greater than Adam. Anything Adam did to bring ruin, Jesus' good is more powerful. See, grace is greater than sin. Life is greater than death. Obedience is greater than uh, disobedience. Amen. So Adam is a type of the one to come. Jesus is the real first man. He's not the first in history chronologically, but he's the first in quality. Being God and man and all, he's the man. Right? Real men walk on water. Come on. Help me, Lord. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. Now that word free gift, or two words in English, is one word in Greek, charisma. The, the idea of grace is already bleeding through the page. The charisma, the free gift, is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus the Messiah, abound to the many. Now, Paul's just saying in a lot of words, better than what I just said. But it's the same thing. Grace is greater than sin. Right? Now, let me tell you a little bit on our whiteboard how grace works. Just a little bit in this, this uh, apostolic gospel. And here I have letter B. The grace formula, or, or you could say the grace pattern. Grace announces a new creation. This is a heart and soul issue to the gospel. This has to be paid attention to and preached and taught 
line upon line, in the vibrant presence of the Spirit. We are not the people we used to be, and we're not the people we sometimes feel like when we're in the flesh or under some of the persuasive messages of the spirits in the atmosphere. Or our old habits are still kicking in. And we might even act like something different, feel like something different. But the gospel is, is even if our feelings change, the gospel keeps saying the same thing. If you're truly a believer, you're a new creation. That's why we have words to remind us. And then we can put them in our mouths and say them in the spirit. It's very, very powerful. The heart and soul of the gospel is that God makes us brand new. He changes our inner disposition. We're transformed into a new human, and that's precisely the terminology he uses, especially in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. You're a new humanity, so take off the old and put on the new, which means it's possible to be new and live like you're old. So we need this gospel. I'm suggesting that grace, I'm not suggesting, I'm teaching, okay? Part of what grace means is that God recreates things. God recreates us when we believe. That's grace. Grace begins with God's disposition of goodwill. And He's, he's, he's willing to suffer to give us new life. That's a gracious God. But that could also be called mercy. What makes us great, what makes it grace, is that He actually gives new life freely when we believe. He recreates us. When we believe. That's the message of grace. Thank you. (laughs) Somebody had to say it. That would have been a dunk, faith says. Finally. (laughs) Right? Um, By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's very important. We have Paul's being economical with his words. We have to pay attention. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We do not begin with works. We begin with grace. We're first recreated just like a baby is first born before he or she is taught how to do anything. You're not teaching a baby to be a human. You're teaching a little human how to be a human in a healthy way. How to be who he or she was born to be, right? So, you know what? Let's see here. I'll do it like this. This can be divided, the the way the apostles would preach and teach grace as a new creation, it's what we see here in Romans 5 and 6, can be divided into these two categories. And I'm using Bible school words now. They're kind of boring sounding, but it won't be boring. The two categories, I'm not writing that very neatly. The indicative and the imperative. These are two, and I'll explain in a moment. The indicative on one side and the imperative on the other is, is the way we talk about grace. Indicative is just indicating what is. So it's indicative. It's just what God did for us. The gospel of grace just indicates all God did for us freely as a free gift. The imperative is then the part where we say, now, therefore, here's what we should do. It's imperative. We take what God did and do something with it. My point is, Paul and the other apostles 
always talk about both. It's never one or the other. It's always both. And that's what slices through all the ridiculousness with the grace teachings that have kind of fallen out of popularity a little bit. But whatever it is, it's just it's 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 nonsensical. It's not biblical. It's not apostolic. These things are always in balance. Now there may be moments where someone needs to hear a little bit more of this, and you don't always say these this part, or vice versa. Someone who knows this part good and well, but they're not behaving very well. You don't have to go through the whole gospel every time. You know, There's moments you might pick and choose for the moment. But the overall community and the overall teaching should be living in both areas of the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is what God has done for us in Christ. And what he gave us in the Holy Spirit. It is our identity as disciples, of, as children of God. People who are born again. And then the imperative is obedience. Let me say something else about this. The bridge in between the two is a word I will choose from the scriptures, and that is exhortation. I just have the verb up there, exhort. This is exactly the way Paul preaches and teaches the gospel. He tells us what God did for us in Christ and then what God did in us as a new creation by the Spirit, and explains who we are and what we are. And then he says, therefore, I exhort you, live like a new creation. Obey the commands of God. This, this word, exhortation, it's one of the most powerful words and concepts in Scripture, because it bridges the indicative and the imperative. Let me tell you something. Paul will never tell people how to behave. Christian people... He will never tell born-again disciples how to behave without also first reminding them who they are. It's, it's got to be this way or it's not by grace, it's by works. You, you following me? It's always based in the identity which is through the new creation. But Paul will never explain to Christians who they are and fail to tell them, now you need to get with the program. You're responsible to act like who you are. And somehow it's even possible for a whole new creation still, at times, we see it in Scripture and in life, where people have rebelled and then they're warned of forfeiting the new creation. Now, I don't understand how that can happen, but I read that in Scripture. That's when it gets extreme in the rebellious side. But it's still always this pattern. Paul would, will never indicate who we are without telling us what we therefore ought to do. But he'll never exhort us to behavior without exhorting, uh, without reminding us who we are, thanks to what God has done in Christ. The exhortation is what, is, what, is what bridges them together, because an exhortation, it's just like the perfect word, the perfect concept. It has the spirit of encouragement, because it's rooted in identity. But it has the force of a command, and the authority of a command, because it's demanding what God demands of us, holiness. So exhortation is just perfect because it blends that spirit of encouragement. It, it's not coming out of anger. It's not coming out of pressure. It, it, it's, saying, it's saying, come on, you're a new creation. You can do this. Now do it. And it's in that spirit. You know, like some parents will tell their kids to do something, but there's a spirit of encouragement to it. Come on, pick up that room. You can do it. But they still got to do it. But it's like, yeah, I can do this. You know, Tom Sawyer. Yeah, I'll, I'll paint that 
sense for you. I'll even pay you to do it. You've encouraged me. I'm going to do what you want. Right? That's the spirit of exhortation. In fact, this Greek word is one of the names of the Holy Spirit, the exhorter or the comforter, the paraclete. He is the exhorter. He'll always remind us who we are and then give us a very loving kick in the seat of the pants at times. Come on, you can do this. But you've got to do it. But if it's rooted in the indicative, it's this exhortation. Now, in, in Scripture, there's other levels of motivating people. Some, sometimes on this side, you have encouragement. People are very, very weak. And they're just really down. And they know all of this, but they're just going through a hard time. They don't need a big exhortation. They just need, oh, you, you're going to be okay. You're going to be all right. And it's just, there's that level of encouragement where the body just encourages or elders and deacons or where they're needed or whatever. So that's the, the most mild form. Uh, and then over here on the other way extreme, when Christians are just steadfastly being rebellious, like James at one point says to them, repent you sinners, because they're sinning so much, it's, it's rebuke and even warning on the way other extreme. And then you have a spectrum all in between. Encouragement and then exhortation, maybe a little stronger encouragement, maybe a command. And then when it gets really severe, people have to be rebuked or even warned. And then the most extreme, they have to be disfellowshipped. My point is, right in the happy middle is the exhortation. So if you think about it, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul talks about what God did for us in Christ. Then he says, therefore I exhort you and gives three more chapters of exhortation. See how that works? That's the, what do I call it? The grace formula. Romans 1 through 11 is all indicative. What God has done, mostly indicative. What God has done in Christ. Then in chapter 12, Therefore I exhort you to present your bodies in view of the mercies of God. That's the indicative. I exhort you, start living like this. Put your bodies on the altar. Burn on that altar. And then exhorts them how to live together like a community. Let the Jews eat kosher. Let the Gentiles eat what they, what they want to eat and just love and honor one another. It's all exhortation. But he didn't give the exhortation without presenting the gospel of a new creation. See how that works? That's what makes exhortation so powerful. The spirit of encouragement with the authority and force of a command. Yes. Doing very well. Getting close, so close. So this is grace. This is foundational to the gospel and therefore our community. So for, the, for, the, for our final few minutes, what I want to talk about is this fact. We are a new creation. But we need the gospel to saturate our brain matter and our heart matter to get it inside us so we're conditioned and can ever more easily walk in the imperative obedience of the gospel, which is just as important in the indic- as the indicative. It's just that there's a certain order. So we're going to be ruled by grace, which is the term Paul uses here. We're going to be ruled by grace because we're going to talk about a new creation. Talk about who we are when we believe. But then we're not afraid to exhort one another on the level of encouragement or as we need to further down the spectrum. Because there must be a behavior, a responsible stewardship of the grace we have been given. See how that works? Even when we talk about that further down component of the gospel that Paul does in Romans 9 through 11, the community, he can't talk about how to do church if people don't understand that they're a new creation. They can iron out the the problems and get through the issues because we're champions. 
We're children of God. We're the majestic ones, David says. The majestic ones. The the saints are the majestic ones in the earth in whom is all my delight. All right? So we left off here, Romans 5.15. Let's read verse 16. Just some verses and some comments here. Um, Your letter C there, I'll give you that, those three points in just a moment after we read some scripture. So we're talking about grace. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which... Uh, came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. The basic pattern is, as much of a sea of sin that Adam brought, the grace of Jesus is overwhelming. We can get out of that first sea. Jesus came and did something greater. That's the point. All right? Jesus is a greater Adam. In verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. That's a powerful phrase. We reign in life. Right? Come on. We're not victims. We are not slaves of sin. We are not slaves of the devil. We rule in life because we're a new creation. So what's Paul doing? He's given us a lot of indicative and then he's going to say, now stop, start living like it. Because y'all church people in Rome, you're not doing it right now. You don't realize who you are. So then as through one transgression, I'm in verse 18, the resulted are, did I already read that? Nope. So as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. That's qualified by those who believe. The point is, whoever would believe, they get this gift. The true humanity, all people, those who believe. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Excuse me. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigns. There's my crown right there. Grace rules. And this is why, because grace says you're a new creation, grace makes you a new creation, then says you're a new creation, then says live like a new creation. That's grace. Grace never compromises on any of those. He, oftentimes we go, we go all only telling people how to live and don't root anything in the transforming power of the gospel. You get all kinds of legalism and pain and pressure. Behavior, behavior, behavior. Yeah, but the Bible says it and it warns. Yeah, it does, but it gives the full picture. So we, it's, grace has to rule. But then you have the other end. It's like, don't even worry about the imperative. I mean, do it if you want. You should. But just you got to live here. you got to live here. you got to live here. It's like the apostles would never do that. The apostles would never pour into our identity without exhorting us to behavior. So when we have just the indicative end emphasized without the imperative, we have what the Bible would call licentiousness. People will, will, will sin 12 out of 10 times in that environment. Because they're assured that doesn't matter, but you should live right. But it really doesn't matter. Paul would say, actually, it does. If, you're, if you, if you um, get ingrained into a lifestyle of poor stewardship of grace, there will be consequences. 
That's on the extreme end, but it's very scripturally possible. This is the way grace, as I understand it, is taught in Scripture. So now, an early exhortation from Paul in Romans 6, where he balances these two right in this chapter. So he says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? In other words, if you misunderstood me when I said where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, I was talking about history. I was talking about two atoms. I wasn't talking about your ethical life. So if you took me out of context, here's what you would say. Are you saying that we should continue sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul says, may it never be. It's like a prayer. That's why some translations would say, God forbid. No, please, may it not be. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? He doesn't even say you shouldn't, which he says elsewhere. He says, how is it possible that a new creation would live subhuman, sub-new human? So he, again, he's, he's going to dig us into the indicative and then take us to the imperative right in this passage. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? To me, this passage, along with Ephesians 4 and the others, some of the most powerful, or the most powerful holiness passages in Scripture, very directly and bluntly talks about ethics. No apology whatsoever. Talks about holiness and lifestyle. No problem. We should do it out loud, but all based in the new creation. Verse 3, don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into the Messiah Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as the Messiah was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. You see the, the correlation? He did it, and then you were baptized into it. It's not the water has magical power. It's the water, you're you're acting out what your faith is doing. And it's an important acting out. It's like the marriage ceremony. So when you're plunged down, that old person is dead. The death of Jesus applies to you. Your old history ends with his death. And your new history begins when he's alive. You're alive in him because he's like Adam. We were all in him when he came up. Yeah. So he's explaining this because these... These Christians didn't know this. And for us who do know it, it's like, well, let's train the brain. Which is our last point. In verse 5, For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old human was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with the Messiah, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that the Messiah... This is one of my favorite verses. A couple of verses. Knowing that the Messiah, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so... Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Man, that is so powerful as Paul takes them deeper. He's saying, do you hear what I'm teaching you? Yes. Do you get it? Yes. Then consider it to be true. Don't just know it, which when you know it, you go, hmm. But consider it to be true. That's when you go, oh, I get it now. 
So you learn it, you have the information. But when you consider it to be true, you have an attitude. I'm not a slave to sin any longer. I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God. That's why Paul says he's alive forever. He's dead to sin and alive to God. He is supreme over all creation, over all evil powers, over all good powers, over everything except God the Father. Therefore, you should consider yourself victorious also. You should consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. I don't know how to proceed into discipleship and house church planting without talking about this. Because this is what it's about. It's about being a new creation. We meet together as families because that's what the new creation does. It's not pacified in a conference setting. I have no problems with conferences. We're having one right now. But to to make that the thing, it's like that's not what he created. (laughs) He created something different. Let's try to do that. So consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Therefore, and now he takes it further. He, he, he pushes the attitude to the extreme and makes us responsible. Therefore, don't let sin rule in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. You see the stewardship? First, learn what I'm saying. Secondly, consider it to be true. And then third, fight. So it, it does not happen magically. This is why this, this, this balanced approach is such a beautiful picture of grace. When grace rules, it's, there's the imperative is still imperative. Come on, don't let that happen anymore. You know who you are. You're better than this. Yeah, I seem to have fallen into a habit. Okay, then let's together immerse you in these truths until there's new ruts in your brain and a new kind of beat in your heart that's in harmony with this gospel truth. Because here's our advantage. It's true. It's not psyching ourselves up. When we dig into this well, we're going to hit a spring. We're not alone. It's, we, we, we are not orphans. We reign in and with the presence of God called the Holy Spirit. So don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lust. Verse 13, don't go on presenting the members of your body as weapons of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as weapons of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, you are under grace. If we're ruled by grace, we can't be ruled by sin. That's why people who are so good at grace that they keep sinning, I'd say, you're just legalistic on the other side of the spectrum because there's no victory over sin. If grace is so great, then you're completely liberated from sin and growing wildly in a victorious life. All right. So, letter C, my three points are that I'll just give you quickly. Number one, grace recreates the human race for those who believe. We have to believe to enter into this new covenant. But for those that do, it's a recreation. That's what grace does. does. It recreates the human race for those who believe. I'll just move to number two. Number two, then grace proclaims this new creation to those who believe, like I did for you today. Number two, grace then proclaims that we are a new creation in Christ. And then number three, 
Grace exhorts us to walk it out or to walk out that new creation. So one, grace recreates every human who believes into a whole new type of human in the Messiah, Jesus. Number two, grace then proclaims that new creation to those who believe. And, you know, there's a lot that goes with that, you know, if... As we have time and we're together, we talk about the Holy Spirit. We talk about having fellowship with Him. and We talk about being members of one another. And all of that is integrated. This is just the foundational truths. So, the foundationally, grace proclaims this new creation in general. And then three, grace exhorts us to walk out that new creation. But it's all attached. It's not behavior without identity. It's not identity without behavior, ever. Because, it, listen, we're more free now than we were when we were sinners, obviously. When we were sinners, at one point or another, we're going to sin. <laughs> we couldn't not sin at some point. As liberated people under grace, we can still sin, and we are also free not to sin. We're like really free now. So when we sin, not out of our immaturity when we're new believers or there's still areas of growth, because sometimes there's things that are more automatic that we have to iron out. But when it's not that issue, but we're still sinning as a new creation, then that, that's, in, in a sense, that's like worse than before. It's like, well, you really knew better on that one. And, and repentance wipes it away like that. I'm not trying to put a heavy on anybody. But we have to realize as a new creation, we can still sin. We're stewards of this. Levels of sin are understood as people grow, but we got to grow. You, you understand what I'm saying? The point is, we have the capacity to live victoriously and we have the capacity to sin if we wanted to. That's why these scriptures are written. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, put off that old man who is dead. Put him off because it's possible to put him back on and live like you always were. Please indulge me this story that many of you have heard so many times, but some of you haven't. When I tell the testimony of the woman who got saved out of the occult, the, the, um, the, the, when, when this woman who, who became a born-again Christian, when she was involved in the occult and in witchcraft, she had the demonic power to see the amount of power other people had on their lives. She and a friend had this discernment, like an evil discernment of spirits. And she said, we could tell every person how much power he or she had. Everybody's got an amount of power, she said. I imagine she means like influence and charisma. You know, that sort of thing that is even for unsaved people, you know, in the world. And she said, I could see everybody's power level. She said, we could always tell the Christians. Because they had the most power. By far. But we were never afraid of the Christians. Because they didn't know it. They had all this power, but they weren't aware of it. She said, every once in a while, we found a Christian who knew his or her power, and we stayed clear of them. She goes, now that I'm a Christian, I want to tell people, you have the power of God in your life. But if we get convinced of it, it's called faith, and walk it out, it's called obedience, we'll be powerful people. So let me give, I call these assignments, no one's going to grade or check up on you. Maybe some of you kids, your parents will, or if you want to do some of these things as a house church, whatever. But let me just give you four very simple practical applications to this, and then you could take it as far as you want in your groups, in your homes, 
in your relationships wherever. Okay, number one, I would really recommend, and and by the way, our goal here overall is just immersion in gospel truth of the new creation. Our goal is immersion in the gospel truth of new creation. Number one, let's memorize at least some of the scriptures. One passage that I listed there, more than one, all of them, whatever, but memorizing scripture is a very, very effective tool to immerse ourselves in the truth. Yes, the key passages that I have up on letter A under the new creation. The key passages, Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5 is like two verses, very well known couple of verses. Ephesians 4, very long. I go all the way into the ethical exhortation. You know, you could stop and go as you wish. Colossians 3, just, I was listening to that this morning, trying to get that back into my head. Because I, I tend to go to Romans 6. But these other vantage points are so beautiful and important. And then 2 Peter chapter 1. They're right there for you. I don't need to repeat them. So, But those are the passages I mean to memorize. Some, all, maybe even more. Who knows? <clears throat> Secondly, as the scripture says, exhort one another day after day in these truths. That's from Hebrews 3.13. I think I have that verse right. Exhort one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Part of the way we're immersed is that this gospel truth comes into our language and we talk about it to one another, especially in smaller groups where if things have to be confessed, it's easier to confess in a smaller, tighter, maybe, you know, gender, uh, uh, the same groups where sisters or brothers can share things that they're struggling with that they wouldn't want to share in a bit of a broader setting. And then we can exhort one another right on those issues rather than just making it theory. And just like a, a, a baby a, a to- or an almost toddler learning to walk, um, some, some of us in certain areas might have that. We can be shaky at first, like everything's on a growth pattern, but we exhort one another, in, and that's the same word, exhort, uh, to encourage and to motivate people through encouragement to behavior. It's a very, very powerful setting. If we're exhorting one another in smaller groups, and some smaller groups may have to be made just for people who are really struggling with something. But that's just a powerful way when we're using the language to one another in love, where we're on one another's side. And it's not just in a message coming to a crowd, but rather it's like, hey, we're with you in this thing. And as you're shakily finding your footing and you might stumble a few times in the meantime, we're still on your side because we're all going in the same direction. And we feel, when we feel safe and not ashamed, we, we can get more confidence. So the smaller group language is important for exhortation. Number three, daily confession. Uh, I, I would advise daily confession of these passages, personalizing them, reading them, and then when they're memorized, reciting them out loud. <clears throat> I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's a passage I didn't list. That's Galatians Two, twenty, two, twenty, and twenty-one. Okay, thank you. There's another one, and you personalize. And I am crucified. Sometimes we have to get adamant and be insistent uh, in terms of who we are. So the daily confession. Just sometimes I'll do the texts as they are, and then I'll personalize them. But whatever, you get the idea. 
And then number four, attack, in quotes, attack through new habits. Develop holy routines. Develop new muscle memory of the brain, of the tongue, of the body and what it does. We can have brain and muscle memory even in minor things that are not athletic. We'll tend to go through similar things. The mouth will, you know, just develop, like on purpose in the awkward moment, develop a new routine, a new language when such and such happens and such and such feeling comes. Now I'm going to say this. Boy, it, does, it feels counterintuitive to say how I'm victorious right now. I don't feel victorious. I feel like punting my dog. No offense, there's nothing personal about that. So it's very awkward, but it's just, you know, learning a new stroke, whatever, golf or tennis, it's awkward until it's learned. But again, if we're tapping into the Holy Spirit power when we're doing that, we're not just learning a new muscle memory. We're, we're flowing with God. Jesus is King. Praise God.